there's a lot of good stuff there. I think we there was a lot of like really considerable like things to consider. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a harder one. Like I, you know, my that girl that made a comment to me, she's like, I need to take out a notebook when I listen to your podcast. Like this is gonna be one of those. This isn't just a selling tactic of mine. I truly believe this, that if someone has thought about anything mm-hmm. and they've come to a conclusion that matters, mm-hmm. they're already on my team. Like They're already in the 10% of society that isn't just pushing the days, working in their nine to five and going home and going to sleep. So, so even if your conclusion was different than mine, I still consider you actually extremely enlightened so long you're reflecting on things that matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome into the Zal, that cozy place where all of us should be studying, where you actually may just catch a cup of coffee with a friend. I drank too much last night, is, <laughs> I should say. Maybe that actually is the path to enlightenment, I don't know. I am your host, David Grossbaum, and joining me today is co-host Adam Levinson. Hello. Hello, that's the sound of me drinking coffee. Today we will be discussing Scratch, Scratch, Scratch. On Rosh Hashanah, we blow the shofar often the verb used with the shofar is that it awakens people. But the question that I've always had was, so what? You're up. What are you doing with the day? <laughs> like a rooster that comes too late. It's like, all right, already. No, I'm saying you're up. Let's, let's say we someone got out of bed, but then spent the entire day sitting on the couch watching television. We wouldn't celebrate that person. So why in Rosh Hashanah do we say, hooray, we woke up? Okay, go on. Why is waking up in and of itself an exciting thing? And that's, uh, by extension, the topic we'll be addressing today. I'm going to have to start adding things to my to-do list, is what you mean. Meaning? I got to do more than just waking up. I, was, I, I, <laughs> I have been calling that a win of late. Use that for yourself. With the advent of the internet and modern psychology, we are becoming more aware of problems. Problems with our health, problems with our psyche, and problems with our society. Does possessing this knowledge and sharing it with others assist at all with finding its solution? The Hasidic expression is Yedias Hamachla Chatzi Refuah, which means knowing the illness is half of the remedy. That the very knowledge of the illness is already half of the remedy. Does that knowledge of the illness help at all? So, for example, the issue of the day is what's going on in Afghanistan. And obviously, plenty of people are sharing things on their instagram stories with very little intention of doing anything about it not even sending money to organizations but not to mention actually doing anything with boots on the ground in afghanistan obviously does them possessing that knowledge slash sharing that knowledge with other people help at all if it remains in the realm of knowledge itself right i've always sort of wondered in the great realm of raising awareness 
which is, I think, exactly what we're talking about. Where do you go from there? And in some cases, it may be just because it may be easier to raise awareness than to act on that awareness. But in other cases, and I think Afghanistan may be a very good example, what what do you do? You know, you may just not know. And that may be the other, the other missing half of a, a remedy in some cases. So I should add parenthetically that the simple answer is, you know, spreading knowledge will affect votes, which will affect foreign policy. So even though it's very far removed from that Instagram story, but nevertheless, you feel like you're doing something in the realm of policy. But we know that that's very, very distant. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is me nitpicking again right off the bat and being missing the pointy. But I think we're, we, we, it's always going to depend on what kind of illness and um, let's assume half is going to be up for grabs in, in whatever way we describe that. But mostly I think we need to separate these kind of physical and mental and micro and macro, you know, individual and social issues. And maybe they'll all come back together and seem more similar than different. But when I think about this right off the bat, I go, well, it doesn't, isn't this going to be really different depending on what kind of, what kind of problem we're, we're talking about? Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I agree with you 100%. And um, <laughs> we always, we're always looking for solid, conclusive things on this podcast and we end up <laughs> just remaining in the realm of the fickle and oh, yeah. the and the debatable but i i totally agree with you i think one thing that's not debatable is that it depends now what it depends on uh, is going to be a lot of murkiness but we're going to try to roll up our sleeves on that discussion we're constantly in the home depot paint aisle that's just grays that's like what kind of gray <laughs> what what gray do you want and if we can figure out what your kitchen looks like then maybe we'll find like a more appropriate gray exactly but before we get into the gray we have um a few messages from our sponsors adam today's episode is brought to you by the union bank of switzerland a message from chairman of the board, Heinrich von Trapp, to our Jewish listeners. We're very sorry about accepting and protecting valuables stolen from your ancestors during the most extensive genocide in recent history. But we're not going to give them back. The Union Bank of Switzerland, tough titties for you. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, just to rehash that line from Hasidic mysticism, the line is, Yedias Amachla Knowledge of the illness is half of the remedy. Now, interesting side note, this rarely is specifically attributed to a Jewish source. Even when the previous Chabad Rebbe mentions it, he says, as the wise man said, as the wise man said, without specifying. Hmm. I've seen rabbinic forums asking what the source is, what the source, what the original source for this proverb is. Is it rare to have this ambiguous attribution in sort of the same kind of way that uh, I don't know why this always comes to the top of my mind, but the way that Trump would give speeches and say, you know, this is what I've been hearing. Right. And and the academic side goes, hey, man, I need I need a citation or six for 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 where this comes from. Mm -hmm. Is that is that is that rare? It's rare in the sense that when there's no attribution for something that's so widely used, I would say it's rare. Mm. But I don't think it's so rare to have an expression that's less known to be like, yeah, I heard this. You mm -hmm. know, that makes sense to, to kind of not have specific attribution. 
But when it's this widely used, and I, I would say, no, especially in modern Chabad conversations, I know that this is an expression used all the time, on the daily. And I apparently uh, the source for it is is a little unknown. So on these forums, one of the conclusions was that it comes from either the Shalah or the Sefer HaChinuch, both pretty primary sources, depending who you're comparing it to. I will, I will say one is more legalistic and one is more Kabbalistic. I should add that. But they both make the point that it's impossible for a doctor to treat an illness until he knows what the illness is. That's the line from them. In, in, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the line from them. They don't use as strong a term um, as knowing the illness is half of the remedy. They say that in order to find the remedy, you have to know the illness. But, uh -huh. but, the, but the expression used uh, in Hasidic mysticism all the time is much, much stronger. It's saying half of the remedy is already accomplished with the knowledge of the illness. Mm -hmm. So and when you say Kabbalistic, you're saying this is where it has the more abstracted, maybe more metaphorical approach that it's more open to that. Um, probably, but I guess it's interesting that one of the sources are legalistic and the other is Kabbalistic, I'd say more mystical, um, but they both well, say a similar thing. What is that? But just what does that mean to have those different sources? I, I, I realize now how this could be confusing. In the Chabad mysticism, the expression is used that knowledge of the illness is already half of the remedy. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the legalistic or Kabbalistic books, which are, you know, a good few hundred years older, they use a similar term where you could see where it's linked, but it's not exactly so strong. It just says that it's impossible for a doctor to treat an illness that he doesn't know what it is. Got it. Less intense. Just you, you get that here's a prerequisite for, for, for this remedy is knowing, knowing what it is you're actually treating. Right. So, but just to emphasize the question again, or to reiterate it, in Chabad philosophy, we find this line that it's half of the remedy. But if you look through all the previous Jewish sources, you don't really find anyone, any, any source that speaks so stridently and so strongly. So here's a line from a man named Thomas Fuller, who apparently was a philosopher in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. And his, his words are as follows. A disease known is half cured. Thomas Fuller. That seems very, very related. Absolutely. I also think... It's, it's almost verbatim. I think the wording is interesting just right off the bat because I think that the, the kind of more American idiom is always about half the battle or half the war. And the idea of half the remedy is... It's really close, but there's this different flavor to it. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, firstly, a disease is within you and a battle is without you. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I don't think I have the uh, guts to say that when the Hasidic Rebbes were referring to that wise man, they were referring to Thomas Fuller. But I think it's very interesting that the words almost line up in a perfect translation this seems like this is just something that has such a long oral history that the idea of attributing it to anyone is just silly you know um and and often kind of wrong i mean we have so many of these phrases that get tossed around like you know be the change you want to see in the world and and every meme on instagram or whatever you know shows a picture of gandhi and it's like gandhi didn't actually say that but it 
it doesn't it shouldn't matter you know it shouldn't matter as long as that as long as that resonates with you okay so this all this this attribution question was all a huge tangent we'll see how much how much makes it make it through adam's chopping block during editing. we need we need a we need a uh we need a uh like an interlude that just says digression you know we need like a like a sound bite we can play that's like just so you know digression digression <laughs> do you know that in the cartoons it's like that fluffy like do 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 like when the guy's imagining something <laughs> we go like sepia tone or whatever yeah I'll... but for like 20 minutes the guy's like all right <laughs> and then we go whoa, 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 and then we're back into we're back into here's where we are just so you know we're picking up okay so uh to at least find one example where perhaps we can have a concrete answer we have a discussion in the talmud and it relates to two weeks ago's torah portion and the torah is discussing the laws of warriors and when they are exempted from the military. And it says three things that are pretty clear-cut and easy to find, uh, to, to understand the exemption. The first one is if you recently got married. The second one is if you've recently purchased a house. And the third one is if you have recently planted a vineyard. Any of these things, for whatever reason... Um, it's a discussion for themselves. You are exempted from military service for any of these things. And then the Torah says, and if you are afraid, if you are afraid, you are also exempted from military service. Now, what is this fear? Fear is quite something you can't put your finger on the same way you could put your finger on, oh, there's a new house. Mm. So there's a dispute in the Talmud between Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Yossi And I don't want to... Um, to bring too much information here because I want the point to be clear. But Rabbi Yosei holds that what's the fear that a warrior might have is that it's a fear of sins, that he thinks that because he's done bad things in his past, God will be uh, punishing him and the punishment is more likely at the time of battle. So he is afraid and possibly will pass on that fear to his fellow soldiers. So he should go home. That's Rabbi Yosei opinion. Mm. Comes along Rabbi Akiva, famous Rabbi Akiva, and he says, no, the fear is actually not a fear of sin, but a fear of just regular battle. Sure. You know, just simple, unsheathed swords <laughs> yeah. making someone afraid. Generally very pointy, and, very frightening. <laughs> um, I thought you said very fighty. I was like, so, yes, <laughs> they're, qu they're quite fighty. Well, the more podcasts we do, the fewer words I plan on using. I plan on regressing into a, a seven-year-old level. It's very fighty. So it's very fighty <laughs> instruments. Um, so uh, I won't say why because it's a huge discussion. But for whatever reason, the opinion of Rubiosi Aglili is considered more... Um, straightforward that it's sins surprisingly it's sins that um would be fearful for the soldier and all the commentaries want to understand is why rabbi kiva wants the fear of battle to be the fear of actual battle why doesn't he agree with rabbi Oseglili to say oh it's a fear of sin and that's what's sure. causing it so the mystics open up rabbi kiva and they basically say like this and i'm just going to get to the bottom line of the mystics and then we'll 
unpack it for our, for our own purposes. They say like this, according to Rabbi Akiva, the moment a soldier is afraid for his sins, he has already accomplished the first level of repentance, and therefore he shouldn't have anything to be afraid of from his sins because God is no longer going to be punishing him for these sins because he already acknowledged their existence. That is the first level of repentance. And therefore, it wouldn't make sense for him to be afraid of them anymore because he's already forgiven for them. Does that mean that the illness that we're talking about is that fear? Or the illness is the... Well, the illness is the, the sins. sins. The knowledge of the illness is the fear in this, in this metaphor. So, in, so Rabbi Kiva's dispute in the Talmud, and I should say for those uh, great Talmudic scholars, this is in Tractate Sota on the bottom of page 44, 44 uh, side one. And, and Rabbi Kiva's opinion is, so let's reiterate that. Rabbi, Kiva, Rabbi Kiva's opinion is the moment you acknowledge the existence of your sins and you're afraid of their ramifications, you've already accomplished a level of repentance which would exempt you from any punishment. So you have nothing to be afraid of. So therefore, he's forced to say that it's the literal battle that's making you afraid. That's why he can't agree with Rabbi Yossi So acknowledging the fear is the remedy for the fear, if you understand how that... Or even have, having the fear. Having, having having the fear is the remedy for the fear? Tells you that you see the, the existence of your flaws and you care about them. Period. Seeing the, the existence of your flaws and having that bother you is the lowest level of repentance, and therefore you are no longer liable for punishment. According to there's Rabbi something Kiva. that really reminds me of of uh, Rilke, the Austrian poet, and I I think this comes up not in the context of fear but of sadness in letters to a young poet. He writes something I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing the idea that when you feel this sadness know that in that feeling that means that you're still connected to the world that the world has not forgotten you there's a reason for feeling sad and for feeling connected and in that way there's a there is this kind of there's a mechanism for escaping from that sadness if, a feel, if it's a feeling of disconnection and being lost and being at sea. Um, he, he says it uh, better, but it's a nice way of, of phrasing, here you feel this bad thing, but actually maybe you can flip that on its, on its head. I feel like it's a similar concept, yeah. So, but the, but I guess we we still are stuck with. Does it, who was the, what was the name of that poet? Rainer Maria Rilke. Rilke. Did he did is that a he or she? He. Did he provide a um, an explanation as to why why that sadness is useful? Let me just look up this quote. So the paragraph that I remember is it goes like this, from letters to a young poet. So you must not be frightened if a sadness rises up before you, larger than any you have ever seen, if a restiveness like light cloud shadows passes over your hands and over all you do. You must think that something is happening with you, that life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hand, it will not let you fall. Why do you want to shut out of your life any agitation, any pain, any melancholy, since you really do not know what these states are working upon you? 
Mm-hmm. So he doesn't specify what what their workings are, but he says they exist, those workings. So here's a related line. This is from a uh, Fabrengan of the Rebbes in 1958 um, on Purim. And he quotes this quote that I mentioned from Hasidic mysticism, that knowledge of the illness is half the remedy. And he says, and this was said in Yiddish, the book I have is translated into Hebrew, but they they actually have some English over here, which I find surprising for uh, the Rebbe said it in English. I found it surprising he said it in English. A, that's uncommon, and B, uh, in 1958 especially, just generally this being on the topic. So he says we this concept of the simple knowledge being helpful appears even in medicine. From recent treatments, one can explain to the person sick the reason that brought him to this illness. And he says it in, in English, either nervous or mentally sick, or emotionally disturbed. That's those were those three uh, reasons were said in English by the Rebbe. Val Yideza Yisrapeth, through the very knowledge of what brought him to this illness, that already leads to healing. He sees, and this is what the Rebbe says, he sees that it's that he's able to leave this because he knows how he got into it. This is where I have I have a couple of major questions. And one is, um, what is re- what does real knowledge actually mean? Especially now, we, we're talking about these mental issues. And it's interesting that he focuses on largely these mental things. It's not about physical. Because the physical things, the knowledge probably wouldn't lead to an actual healing. It's helpful to find the remedy, but it's not the remedy itself. Ah. Whereas in these cases, it's the remedy itself. It's, you know, I think about older family members, just to just to touch on this physical bit before the, I think, more complicated aspects. But, you know, I have older family members that have been struggling with physical ailments. And then after years, they find a diagnosis that actually leads to a real course of action um, and no, it's not a remedy in itself because now you have to go and do the thing. And in this case, it's where, you know, that the idea between half the remedy and half the battle is different. Maybe you win that little battle and understand where to go afterwards, but the, but you haven't won the war, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But in the other case, it is a remedy for the uncertainty and for the fear that came with not knowing from the beginning so there is in some ways this well if someone just feels emotionally problematic but they can never put their finger on what the problem was they feel even worse because they say to themselves am i essentially flawed but when you point to a a scenario we're like no this isn't essential to you this was actually quite circumstantial you know it was caused by this this and this that immediately is the remedy itself because it was just a mental illness in the first place so therefore once you've explained how it got there and that it's not essential to you that's already a source of comfort but isn't that a difference between the physical and mental side the physical one it really is something that you have to address and the mental side doesn't mean that just because you found it you're done and now that's the remedy it means now you got to do you got to do something about it the remedy comes later and this and this knowledge is maybe that's why it's half the remedy i think we're using i think we're using the physical and the mental words differently Mm. 
But to me, when it's mental, this is how I understand it. Remember you said, and I agreed that uh, it depends. Sure does. Home Depot gray. <laughs> I hope it's so too over here. Like if it's a, if, if you have, you know, if you have a, uh, you know, a skin lesion, knowing about it isn't half the remedy. It's it's zero percent of the remedy. Now you know what to buy to get on the remedy. But if it's something mental or emotional, the knowledge is already half the remedy because you have determined that it isn't essential to you and therefore so- solvable, mm. and therefore you're already comforted emotionally or mentally. I just think diagnosis is a big part of remedy, and it may be half the remedy. And this also connects to another question that I had, which was. And maybe this is totally flipping everything on its head, but uh, what's the reverse of this? What does misdiagnosis mean? What is not knowledge of the illness, but a, a misunderstanding of what the illness is? Is that wow? Does that have a negative effect? Wow, that's you know. So if what I'm saying is true, I guess it depends. The in the mental or emotional, in my opinion, this is my understanding, in the mental and emotional situations, the uh, diagnosis has a greater ability to heal, but also has a greater ability to harm. Mm. In the case where it's just physical and you you tried the wrong, you know, aspirin or over-the-counter medicine, and then you'll try another one the next day, but it's not like there were any side effects from that first Oh, one. well, there definitely could be. Somebody says, ah, you know, uh, I think your uh, leg is broken, but really you have... Uh some kind of uh, issue with circulation and they go eh, so we right. uh, i don't know we uh, chopped your leg off or whatever and, and you go well could you put it back tomorrow i i don't think that was you know right no yeah it's circum there are cases where it could be i'm just saying the very fact that you were misled i don't think automatically makes the problem worse whereas with mental and emotional the misleading uh information does is guaranteed to bring more anxiety. I th- I think. Yeah, I think maybe now that's that might be a reason why in terms of mental health, there is this ambiguity that people hide behind this kind of ambiguity, which is not necessarily hiding. It might be just a lack of uh, a lack of answers. But, you know, we have these diagnoses like generalized anxiety disorder, which could apply to the entire world in some ways or as a spectrum and it also means like what do you what do you do with that it's so general it's so vague what what's the remedy what have you actually diagnosed what is the knowledge that you've actually brought to that right it could be that just stems from cowardice right yeah maybe i mean you know you think about a doctor making a house call in the 19th century and he goes uh, i don't know try this or in the dark ages going put a leech on it how about that? Put a leech. It worked for a snake bite. Maybe it'll work for depression. I don't know. And, and you know, and you, you did your best. And now, yeah, the, the idea of doing something wrong, I think, definitely comes with, with more consequences. So I want to add some more food for thought on this topic. Hit me. I'm hungry. We say that the chauffeur wakes the person up and and just the fact that their eyes are open is already an idea worth celebrating. And we, we asked that. We said in the beginning, we asked, what's the big deal of waking up if we don't know what you're going to do with your day? But I but the, the concept of the waking up in and of itself being celebrated actually resonates with me um, to get a bit personal. Often I'll meet uh, Jewish people 
like the types of Jews that would consider you very observant. Um, and they'll say to me, you know, David, or they, they don't know they could call me David, so they try to be respectful and call me rabbi. And uh, they'll say, you know, I'm atheistic. I'm agnostic. I've thought about this and this, and to me, Judaism doesn't speak to me. And, and, and therefore, they assume that I have to immediately uh, burn that bridge or separate myself from them. Um, and this isn't just a selling tactic of mine. I truly believe this, that if someone has thought about anything— uh-huh and they've come to a conclusion that matters, mm-hmm. they're already on my team. Like They're already in the 10% of society that isn't just pushing the days, working in their 9 to 5, and going home and going to sleep. So, so even if your conclusion was different than mine, I still consider you actually extremely enlightened so long you're reflecting on things that matter. That's amazing. I mean, that... <laughs> I mean, it really is, that's as good as you can get in terms of, of encouraging human connection and, you know, philosophy in the broadest sense of just trying to, trying to figure things out and, and trying to pursue this idea of knowing things leading to remedies. I see this, I I see this as connected. I, um, I don't know if I perfectly worked out how, but I just see it as connected. Like the very fact that there's a knowledge of a lack or there's uh, some form of eyes opening in the morning and your eyes are now open. Even if you'll be seeing something after awakening different than what I see, or even if that lack is filled with something else uh, that I feel it should be feel- filled with, we've, we've already made the decision that there's a lack there that needs to be filled. And to me, that's a huge commonality Um almost more than even having a conclusion, just the commonality of knowing the lack before figuring out what the particular remedy is. That's already a huge remedy in itself. But that's, yeah, that's exactly what I mean about, you know, a diagnosis that treats a kind of uncertainty and that uncertainty is causing anxieties in other ways beyond the physical. And so that is, that is addressing something. And also when you talk about, the the lack of knowledge I, I can't help but think about you know aristotle's famous i know that i know nothing and maybe we don't believe that fully but i think i mean that that resonates with me this you know acknowledging this this kind of fundamental truth agree with it or not that there isn't really such a thing as certainty like there may not even be reality in the sense that we interpret some kind of objective truth that we all experience in the same way but what does acknowledging that do like it it does address some of the illnesses of of certainty you know the difficulties of engaging with the world that doesn't quite fit the mold that you think it should or or the illness of hubris and connecting with people i can't connect with them because they know this and i know this to be true and they're and maybe that is maybe that you know maybe that like that's a remedy for something very intellectual and maybe existential even that i know that i know nothing and so therefore now we can begin to talk there is an it, 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 i guess that depends on on this idea that that it's an illness to think that you have certainty in knowledge yeah I will say that all of these theorizing as to why it's half the remedy, I think all of our theories so far aren't applicable to 
uh, global global ills, <laughs> like what's going on in Afghanistan. Like all, if you apply all of our explanations as to why it's half a remedy, uh, it's not half a remedy by just knowing about something that's very very distant about you, and it's not like an emotional or mental problem within yourself, but it's just you know bloodshed and and uh, you know human rights violations in Afghanistan. I'm not sure it's half the remedy in the same way. Okay, so so let's zoom out. What does it mean to think about this on this much more macro level? And and really, when I think sociologically, you cannot separate these things. The things that are happening on a macro level are going to affect how you process um, the world around you and your own life. Um, but yes, but what about the other way? What about what's going on in your own life? How does that affect the macro in this case? Yeah, I mean, it definitely goes back and forth. It certainly affects the lens that you you see things through. But yeah, think about Afghanistan. Okay, just imagine you've seen the picture that that people cling to planes in Kabul this week compared to people in Vietnam clinging to the helicopters leaving. It is like a shot for shot remake. And now we know that. Um, what is there any re- is there any remedy from that? Or maybe it doesn't even count as knowledge. I, I, it should. I think it does. It does count as knowledge. Here's a clear example of, say, history repeating. Here's a clear example of, um, in, you know, in in so many ways of, of failing. Um, in terms of human life and suffering what what is yeah does that knowledge have any remedy at that level i don't see it in the same way i don't see it as directly like in in the case of a mental or emotional or a personal flaw i do see how i i could explain to myself how, how the knowledge is half the remedy in this case I don't see it. It's all very, meaning there's a lot of dominoes that need to fall before it actually has an effect and there's actually a remedy. So does that mean that this, that these phrases were really geared towards a much more individual kind of understanding? That's the question at hand. I, in my humble understanding, I think you have to say yes, but you know, the listener is more than invited to disagree. We'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, I think at this baseline level, we do have maybe this invitation to empathy hey uh understand this kind of suffering understand maybe your role or your connection to it something someone not most people most people are going to click through the stories and say oh man this is terrible you know my heart goes out my heart's breaking for this but you know heartbreak is a is a spectrum and you know next week you'll maybe post pictures of a sandwich or tomorrow or today or whatever and maybe some of that also has to do with that knowledge knowledge isn't a isn't an instant thing it's not like oh i know this and now let's move on remedy happened maybe knowledge always implies that you have to actually sit with something you have to ingest it digest it for longer you know what i mean and and just watching a news story and going, oh, I know this, but if next week you're really not thinking about it, this was the this was the issue of the day. Maybe once the knowledge goes away, the remedy goes away. Also, I understand what you're saying. You might be onto something. 
that true knowledge is only once it connects to some action. I hear that. We always talk. We always talk about that. Yeah. That none of this is about pontificating and 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 bloviating and 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 uh, other aidings, right? Isn't this this constant issue in, in everything we're talking about? Yeah. No. It's always that's always the topic at hand. But I don't think we've ever tied it to the definition of knowledge. No. That's no. that that I think is new. And 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 I, there's a lot of Hasidic mysticism that I've studied on the nature of knowledge, on the nature of das. It's a big deal. And yes, da, das by definition is connected to your thought, speech, and action. Das meaning knowledge. Knowledge. Yeah, das. That's, by the way, the third letter in the acronym Chabad. Chachma bin das, das, wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Yeah, brother. We're glad to remind you that the Zal is brought to you uh, by the Dill Farmers Association of America. Remember to put dill in everything. It's just that simple. The DFAA says, remember the old country or piss on your ancestors' graves. It's up to you. Uh, by the JCC, ISS, the Jewish Community Center in the International Space Station is the first Jewish organization based entirely in outer space. Home for Jews of all nations to eat food even drier than hamantaschen and to complain about a room temperature that cannot be changed without multilateral agreements between the world's superpowers. All events are free of charge. Transportation is $72 million. JCCISS, we never have a minion, but we can definitely see one through the telescope. And by Banana Shevitz, does your kiddish wine not have enough potassium? Try Banana Shevitz, the only kosher banana wine available, and not for good reason. Why would you say that? Banana Shevitz is made from the finest bananas they have near the checkout at Zabar's and is recommended by zero out of five dentists. Banana Shevitz, monkeys like it, so why shouldn't you? And by Squarespace, Squarespace, we heard there was a podcast, so Squarespace. Oh, here's another thing, maybe one layer deeper, is looking for illness, you know, trying to understand what an illness is, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if we go, I don't feel so good. I wonder what that is. Or this is, I think something's going wrong over here. And we and we just keep digging into wow, what's happening. What is really happening? What's really happening? Are, are we kind of screwing ourselves? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, if you're if you're finding something that doesn't exist and you actually are finding things, that's a... That's a serious problem, I would say. You go, I don't feel so good today. I'm feeling like a little stressed out today. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? And you could just be going about your day, go for a run, eat a sandwich, make a falafel. Yeah, but isn't that, that true with every single piece of advice under the sun? That if you're just applying it in the wrong context, then it's then it's going to lead you astray? Like, if I tell you the way to get to Target is to go straight, turn right, turn left, but then you apply that knowledge to the Target and... New York City and not in Indianapolis, you'll be led astray. You know, it's. It, I feel like every single useful piece of advice, if misused or used in 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 cases that it doesn't exist, will be, will be leading you awry. This I think is even more like if you're even asking for advice, is that ever going to be an issue? If you're if you're asking for knowledge, is there time to where the even the pursuit of that knowledge is going to be a, a non-remedy you know is the pursuit of saying hey how do i get to target when really you kind of know or you could go to the place what are you trying to get paper towel go the place that you do know or you know mm -hmm. 
I'm getting lost in the pandemic mindset of whatever you need is some <laughs> sort of paper product. <laughs> now, now I'm talking about talking about uh yeah, this is where we gotta insert digression, digression. <laughs> <laughs> if I were a smart man, maybe I would have better answers. After all these digressions, for all the Jews listening out there, make sure to catch the show for this Rosh Hashanah, you know, the bottom line, the, the chop of the the chop of the axe. The chop of the axe. It's a rush. It's a tr- bad translation of Russian of tapara de placho, which is like a classic Hasidic expression, which means the chop of the axe is like you could talk and talk and talk and talk, but like forget about actually being woken up with the shofar as we're describing it oh man a shofar will wake you up that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) you know in yeshiva there's actually a particular profession called the veker which means the waker and he would be just a guy that had an alarm clock and wanted to get like i think like five bucks a day or something and he would wake up a bit earlier than everyone else and then his job was to wake up everyone else in yeshiva no kidding yeah, just walk through the dormitory, waking everyone else up. And I assume during the month of Elul and Rosh Hashanah time, he'd blow the shofar occasionally. I wouldn't be surprised if he just used that tactic. That is an unbelievable job. Just to just to ask a guy, hey, your job is to be pretty annoying constantly every day. Oh my God, that level of resentment that that, that guy had that that he built up for himself was a reservoir. You know, you could feed a small country. <laughs> people like i was okay with him but the sleepers resented that guy because he had to do his job you know he had to do his job he had to do his job yeah knowledge of his job was not a very good remedy for getting invited to Fabringen, you know no he was a farbringed out (laughs) he wasn't farbringed in he was farbringed out Hey, if you find that funny, you are listening to the right podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to this all. We hope despite (laughs) despite all of our pontificating, bloviating, theorizing, we've given you some food for thought, some concretized conclusions. And just wanted to thank my co-host, Adam. He and I are your official source for uncertainty. <laughs> Come back to the Zal and uh, we'll provide. Music, as always, provided by Stephanie Chow. And we will catch you next week. One last note, this podcast is sponsored neither by Squarespace nor by the Union Bank of Switzerland. <laughs> Actually, I'm relishing that lawsuit if the Union Bank of Switzerland ever comes forward. Come at us, baby. We got it. We got, we're, we're lawyered up. We're, yeah. <laughs> I know a whole slew of Cardoza graduates just ready. ready. We're ready for it, man. I, I yeah. Waiting at the wings. I don't even care if all you took was a was was a a, a, a latke recipe and a, and a couple jars of gefilte fish. Okay, I want them. I want them. All right, uh, some sauerkraut and a, you know and a, a couple of a couple of macarons. And just give us back, give us back all the cookies.
This actually hits really close to home because ostensibly my dad's mom's side of the family were like very wealthy in their in their village in Belarus. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not seeing any of that. I think it was just seized and that was the rest by the Bank of Switzerland. I, you know, this idea of neutrality, but I'm, I'm very glad that they're um, at least contributing to their podcast. <laughs> but we, in the interest of uh, knowledge being um, half of the remedy, there's a little bit of knowledge. Um, give the gross bones back their <laughs> shit. Give it back. Let them have a f- painting. I mean, come on. I don't even know what the the market value is for the uh, the Hovels and Pietrikov Belarus, but uh, we're <laughs> we're not gotta, exactly picketing. I gotta tell you, I got on a train in Switzerland once, and I was sitting in the wrong class. And to be fair, these trains—they're basically identical. They're nice trains that take you from you know Geneva into Zurich into the mountains or whatever. And, uh first class second class it's all basically the same i'm sitting in second class the guy goes uh you know sitting first class and i was feeling pretty sick and i you know got kind of uh salty about it and i literally said i said i'm not sitting in the wrong class you should give me this whole train (laughs) give me the train did it work uh he went you're still sitting in the wrong place and i went okay Okay. All right. 